Welcome back to another episode of Technical Roundup. We are joined by the handsome and now infamous Ledger Status. How are you doing? I'm doing well. When did I become infamous? <laughs> I've just decided that right now. I thought it was suitable for the intro. And of course, Don, the alleged perma bear to which there is little truth unless you're on twitter.com how are you doing good good i mean my shorts from 3k is doing well <laughs> starting to get back into profit <laughs> yeah yeah it's definitely moving moving in your favor as the as the bitfinex whale um as you know technical roundup is brought to you by blockfolio and ledger status on thursdays is also brought to you by blockfolio this is a bit of a massive conflict of interest podcast oh no it's a it's a consensus of interest it's not <laughs> it's a a con- yeah <laughs> yeah it's it's like a, it's like a team meeting here um but we, we'd like to poke at the serious side of ledger status in this episode of technical roundup he likes to bring himself and market himself as prometheus of the plebs and someone on, on the constant <laughs> quest of just midwit figuring things out but we know better than that we've known him for a while and he'll be sharing his insights with us um, during the course of this episode. So I'm very excited. We have a bunch of topics to discuss, but there's we can't really go far with the current market without asking, is the bull market over? Um, there's a second part to this question, which usually answers that better than answering the question outrightly, which is how are you positioned currently? And at the time of recording, you know, we've had a 55% correction in Bitcoin, bigger in ethereum and altcoins we've kind of been bouncing a little bit and most recently poked below those flash crash lows and they're still kind of ranging in the 30k and not a ton of certainty in the market Uh, headlines still seem to be acting as headwind you know news out of china elon musk sailor names being thrown around um DeFi decimated that you know there's a lot on our plates right now so i guess Take that any in any way you want in any direction. Ledger is the bull market over. Um, you know, I think the best way for me to answer this honestly is to say, the other day in our chat with my co-founders of my new business, I said, I think there's a greater than fifty percent chance that the bull market is over. Um, but I wouldn't consign it to being over outright, and I actually think it'll take a while even if it is over for the market to determine that it's over um that's a fancy way of saying i'm in right now but i'm ready to get out that's good um that makes sense and one of the things that i've always found interesting is more so than just price action stuff um you're one of the few people who can convincingly mix just like price structure but also some trend following tools right like a lot for a lot of your macro overviews, you rely on certain daily and weekly moving averages, not even the crosses per se, but where price is relative to those moving averages to give you like a directional bias or a high time frame read. I remember when the market first pulled back 40%, I confidently DM'd you on Telegram saying, Hey Ledger, what have we broken <laughs> in terms of important <laughs> moving averages? And you gave me quite quite a breakdown. Um, no pun intended. So when it comes to making those sorts of determinations as to higher time frame trend and looking at those weekly and daily time frames, what are your kind of what's in your go to toolkit? Yeah. And what was tricky about this market in particular, I would have been much more confident ex- exiting the market when Bitcoin broke the 20 week moving average, um, because historically that has been a pretty good uh, capture 80 percent of the move type of place. Um, those dips were bought consistently in 2017. 
all throughout this market since we broke up from 10K, I've been very concerned at our lack of testing it because it seemed like all our dips were based on degenerates on margin getting wiped in a single daily candle and then you can have continuation. So we really failed to have broader consolidation. Um, and when you look at a weekly chart, we just extended from those moving averages consistently. And then the first big consolidation we got was not until 60K. And then we got that, you know, fake out to the top side with the Coinbase news, yada, yada. The 20 week told me to sell at 46K. We got a weekly close below the 20 week. It told me sell and risk off and see what happens. The problem was at the very same time, um, I was still quite bullish on Ethereum. <laughs> um, let's see, that was the week of May 10th. Um, and yeah, if you go back to where what Ethereum was doing, it was making all-time highs. Uh, it was at 4K. And I was bullish Ethereum while Bitcoin was consolidating. And then when Bitcoin broke down, Bitcoin, ETH was making all-time highs and I was still bullish for more. Now, the trigger in hindsight would have said the rotation to ETH was good, but the weakness in Bitcoin was your signal to take profit on the ETH trade. Don talked about this actually a bunch. Um, and I think you did too, Cred, but I remember Don specifically because he and I were talking about it. <laughs> yep. um, in that if Bitcoin is too weak, it makes it really challenging for everything else to be terribly strong over a long tenure that should have been my signal to exit my trade and essentially see what's going on in cash for a while and my greed got the better of me there um the, the you asked is the bull market over the bull market by my historical definition of trying to capture the trend the bull market was over at 46k so selling at 30K or 29K or whatever we got to yesterday was not a wise place to be a seller. That was just a retest, honestly, of the May 17th lows. So we essentially made the lows one week after you should have gotten out. So the, these markets are not forgiving to delay when you're trying to exit, right? Um, unless you do so on a bounce. So once I screwed it up, the best thing I could really do was suck it up and clench my butt cheeks and wait until I get a better exit opportunity. And I actually think that's what we'll find now is to what degree of bounce will people determine is a proper exit opportunity that they'll take advantage of. I think we'll see that in the mid 40 Ks. Um, so we'll have a lot of screaming that it's continuation. And I think we'll find out how much, how ripe it is for continuation based on what happens in the mid 40 Ks, which is just the retest of the underside of those weekly levels. There's a key weekly level around, what is that, uh, 45K or so, um, which was where we just had some uh, explosive moves up and then retested to the downside in the beginning of March uh, for Bitcoin. And that's kind of the baseline of where it consolidated at the very top. So I think that'll provide a lot of resistance and we'll find out more if the, if the market's over or not then. So I'll be looking to risk off to be quite frank in the mid 40 Ks. Uh, and that's risking off of my alts and everything else. Um, be very prepared to go to cash. A friend of mine that is not in crypto was asking me, well, how can you get out if like, you think everything's over. And I was thinking like, even though I have stuff spread out, multiple exchanges, multiple hardware wallets, that kind of stuff, I can be in USDC in like less than 10 minutes. So 
it's kind of an excuse to consider it otherwise. So anything over 40 K I'm going to start being cautious. That's what I'll, that's, that's my stance as of today. Um, I rotated, I rotated a lot over the past two days though, as those dips came in with a bullish sentiment. Okay. How, but how do you position for that kind of bounce if you're expecting it? Because I mean, there's the play to just be in Bitcoin. There's the play to be in all coins, just kind of as them having the bigger bounce, right? Because I mean, yeah. A bunch of the old coins kind of went down 50%. Like, how do you position for the bounce that you think is coming? Um, I was like 90% Bitcoin. Um, I was 100, 100% Bitcoin and then briefly trying to reduce my price as we were consolidating. Um, I would I would get out for short periods of time trying to wait on what was happening in case we got that nuke. It was just unfortunate. I didn't catch that nuke in cash, but I did lower my cost basis uh, between Bitcoin and Ethereum positions several times uh, as we were consolidating because whether you call it a right shoulder or whatever you want to call it, like, you know, we were sitting there on this recovery from the big dumps in, in May. Uh, we got to 38, something like that. Um, and on the Ethereum side was where I was more familiar, like playing it. Even if I was in Bitcoin, I was charting Ethereum more, if that makes sense. Um, so I lowered my price a couple times from like 2,700, 2,400. And then I would kind of jump back in in case we were going to make uh, make a push higher, like have that complacency bounce sooner. Um, and then we ended up just breaking down from it. And I, I had de-risked to the point of getting in Bitcoin. And then the Bitcoin essentially dumped harder than I expected. I kind of expected some of these dumps that we got in alts. Um, on the upside, though, I actually think it's kind of stupid to be Bitcoin only if you were Bitcoin holding on the way down, right? Because the reflexivity of the alt market. What I The bet I've made so far this time is the only way I've traded ETH is when I've had the availability. I was just talking pre-show, like Kraken today turned off trading for anyone that doesn't have $10 million on their platform. So that includes me. um and i was trading eth on margin with bitcoin collateral so that was the that was the way i was trading that particular account um and that actually worked quite well throughout all this like my eth basis or my bitcoin basis is up over that period of time and that's from the prior lows in may the other way was to be in bitcoin either on other exchanges or on chain or whatever and then buy capitulation on altcoins for looking for reflexivity to the upside. So I bought comp as an example yesterday. Um, and I bought it at like 220 or something. It capitulated to like sub 200. Uh, and then the highs so far like 270. So the upside, even not buying the lows, uh, was like 20% in less than a day which is better than you're going to get in Bitcoin. So if you're going to hold Bitcoin seeking upside exposure and, and something else, I, I was targeting that reflexivity to for the upside. Um, so I bought alts pretty heavily um, yesterday. So that's how I'm seeking the upside for now. And then I'll take that off. That was about half my portfolio. So I'm like half in altcoins right now. Um, and then I'll, I'll kind of, shift that back to Bitcoin and maybe Ethereum as I feel like the bounce is a little longer in the tooth. Does that make sense? Yeah. I was going to ask, do you think 
it'll like the altcoin reflexivity to the upside will that stick if bitcoin offers the type of meaningful high time frame breakout you're looking for to 45 plus uh i think it'll i think it'll get weaker right. as as that like as people become more convinced that the bottom is in or whatever uh i think bitcoin will gain a lot of strength but what you see early on like doge is one of the best performers today and for the audience listening like this is less than a day after after the lows but on the current daily candle I mean, Doge is something absurd, like 25% up or something, right? Um, that's pretty concerning to me as an example. Like, I, we need, you need Doge to bleed out, honestly. Um, the fact that the dumbest stuff continues to pump uh, basically means that there's still dumb money that's hopeful. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I mean, that's just kind of how it's been the entire, like that's been the case for the 60K range, right? You want to see those people like not do well because yeah. as long as they're gambling, you can't really have like, I mean, it's at least it's rare in my, in my experience that you see like big Bitcoin strength when everyone is gambling somewhere else. It's very strange that from January until May 20th, Bitcoin dominance just tanked consistently. Meaning you were making much more money in altcoins for uh, almost a complete five months. That is not a sign of a uh, like a market with a ton of upside. You know what I mean? Like that's that's is very dangerous in my mind. You need Bitcoin to outperform for a while to show its strength as the top asset in the market. And what you're seeing instead is it underperforming anything else because people are instantly seeking something to be better than Bitcoin. Um, dominance recovered in bursts so far. Uh, you know, like it was dominance was way up for like a week uh, and then it just bled down through the recovery and now it's up a bit again. Um, I'd like to see dominance start to take over while the numbers are going up. <laughs> you know, dominance has only been going up when the numbers are going down. Um, so people are constantly seeking derivative upside, just like I am. I bought comp, you know, instead of Bitcoin, like instead of staying in Bitcoin. Um, I think what would, and I'm going off the fly a bit here. I think what might convince me that the bull market could last longer would be if dominance goes up and Bitcoin goes up. That would give me more faith that perhaps we can consolidate all year and then have like an upside breakout. For what it's worth, the the majority percentage being we have some kind of complacency bounce and die. Uh, that it it's probably the majority percentage, but there's definitely a chance that we have a long consolidation and then break up and continue on. But we need to see, in my mind, we need to see better assets collect the majority of the open interest in the market, meaning the market cap skews towards the top of the list um, because there's a lot of junk getting a lot of dollars. And as liquidity spreads out, I think it makes the market less healthy and therefore the elevator down more significant when it occurs and the more likelihood that it's game over, you know, like that it's all about liquidity. And if you're not getting brand new cash in, then you need to consolidate that liquidity to the truly uh, best assets in the market if you want the bull market to continue. That's the two ways to get money into the big assets, right? Brand new money 
And what we found is they weren't buying Bitcoin or, or Ethereum near as strongly as they were buying Doge. So where those Doge dollars go, as an example, that's the biggest one, right? These American exchanges, they couldn't keep up. Coinbase was peer pressured into listing Doge because they were losing crap loads of volume to our friends at Blockfolio and others that were providing it. And that consolidation of liquidity has to go to good assets. Um, my fear is that liquidity is just exiting the market in pain because they bought the dead ass top of Doge at 69 cents or whatever it was when Elon was on SNL. That's pretty damaging to crypto markets because we need that money to come play the uh, hot ball of money game, whatever that was that y'all talked about, cred. Um, they, but if they just come in and they're just the ones burning and then they leave with, with one third of their money because they, they bought the top, that's not good for bringing, for bringing new retail money into crypto. And we need retail money in addition to institutional money. I think that's about as clear as it gets in terms of expectations. Do you all think I'm being too pieces. pessimistic? No, no, that, that seems pretty reasonable. I mean, it's not asking a lot to basically say, look, we want people to enter the market and not start at the most extreme end of the risk curve, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, that shouldn't be a tall order, but and maybe some lessons have been learned with Dogecoin and other retail coins um, acting the way they did. But, but yeah, that remains to be seen. Generally speaking, just for the benefit of our audience, if you want a healthy and long-lasting kind of bull market, especially altcoin market, you want it to trickle down to some effect, right? Where you have Bitcoin as the number one asset, which looks strong, and then when Bitcoin consolidates and you're not worried about it dropping 30, 40, 50%, that risk, that money kind of flows down or flows out towards right. the riskier part of the curve when you go into Ethereum, DeFi, and then as you go along, you get your meme coins, dog coins, etc. So Ledger's argument is essentially, if I want a more me meaningful recovery in the market as a whole, or maybe the only way you get your kind of double bubble scenario or longer time frame continuation is we need strength where it's most needed, which is Bitcoin, and then we can talk about the higher beta um, riskier stuff. So we know how your position now. Um, I'm sure this will be fun to listen to as either Giga Brain or Giga Doom uh, in the in the weeks to come, given I expect a somewhat speedy resolution. Yeah, one other confluence about like why the mid 40Ks, the 20 week moving averages there and also the, the global um, state of, of health in a market uh, in legacy markets tends to be the 200 day price relative to the 200 day. That's about 43, 44K. You can totally make a case that we just did that. We went to about 41, but that would be a very weak version of it. That's actually how I got trapped in Bitcoin because I was waiting on Bitcoin to go like <laughs> properly tap the 200 and I would have probably risked off. The, the screw up I had was after we had a, a kind of a daily doji indecisive candle, I should have pieced out, you know, and I didn't do it. So that cost me, uh, you know, whatever, $6,000 per coin of, of potential um price action that I could have been on the sidelines for and wasn't. And I could have come in with a, a greater position of strength. I still had a position of strength as I was playing the dominance rotation, right? But the dominance rotation is not near as attractive as maintaining your dollar balance while everything's nuking. Right. Totally concur. Um, on that note, you mentioned slightly earlier that at that one of the trickier signals in the market, and I totally agree with this, was that Bitcoin really looked weak 
but then Ethereum was setting new all-time highs, and ETH BTC was going crazy, and it was quite hard, and I remember this feeling distinctly, to meaningfully entertain the idea of a risk-off market. When you see ETH with, you know, flippening momentum, ETH BTC going crazy, setting, you know, it's still a high market cap asset. So that thing sets new all-time highs. It's pretty hard to be, or I found it pretty hard to be, kind of macro bearish crypto in that context. Um, yes. So in that, you know, in that vein, when it comes to ETH BTC and ETH generally, are you are you a flippening advocate or maybe still a flippening advocate? And for those who might be unaware, uh, what does that term mean? And if, if you are on in that camp, what's the kind of base case or reasoning for it? Yeah, the <laughs> the flippening is that the Ethereum market cap is higher than Bitcoin's market cap. Um, I have been very bullish on Ethereum all year. At a yeah, I would say all year. You know, I, one of the things I got luckiest with was I played properly after getting into DeFi, and I've talked about this on your show before. I got into DeFi in summer 2020 and played at least half, maybe two-thirds of DeFi summer. And that set me up really well. Um, and then I kind of I kind of cut bait and ran and deposited as much as I could back into Bitcoin in time to have not lost everything because all that DeFi stuff went down like 80% while Bitcoin ran all fall into the new year. Um, I've, I've massively transitioned my point of view based on tax implications in America, which is pretty American-centric, but not only America, which is that I felt that because I was doing it, other people like me were probably considering it as well, that they didn't want to take the tax burden of selling their Bitcoin in 2020. And therefore, while Bitcoin's mooning, why do you care about altcoins? And for what we just said, this is the argument, right? Altcoin dominance was going down. Bitcoin was very strong. And that was the sign of a super healthy market. So if we're going to do it again, let's just do the same thing. Um, that's a, that's a, it's a big ask to ask for that twice in one market cycle. <laughs> uh, that said, my plan was to shift to altcoins and, and a strong Ethereum basis in, in 2021. So that's what I did. And it worked out wonderfully for a couple of months before uh, DeFi topped. And then the rotation, the hot ball of money went all, to all the other coins to continue that dominance trend. ETH itself didn't really break out until like April, though. And this is for the same reason I bought Comp and other DeFi stuff instead of ETH. We're really seeing a funny trend where in 2017, most everything altcoin in altcoin land was traded on a Bitcoin relative basis because you'd go on Bittrex or Poloniex and you'd buy like something on a Bitcoin pair. So um, that that altcoin basis, you were looking, what's it doing relative to BTC? Am I beating BTC or am I not beating BTC? And sometimes the strength in alts would weaken Bitcoin or cause it to consolidate rather than like pump really hard. Um, so it was this inverse relationship between Bitcoin and altcoins. Now we're seeing that some between ETH and DeFi where DeFi was pretty weak while ETH finally pumped because ETH was pumping, right? And ETH is more muted than DeFi right now in this period of like, great reflexivity because so many of these blue chip DeFi coins are trading on 
AMMs relative to ETH. So people are selling ETH to buy DeFi. So it's a little more muted than other stuff. So I'd rather either be in Bitcoin, which is kind of the king safety blanket of the market. And if I want to take greater risk, I'm doing it in DeFi coins because people are selling ETH to buy those DeFi coins based on the way those uh, those pool, liquidity pools are structured. So um, I was very bullish ETH. It finally moved strongly. And I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't say a flippening is great for crypto. <laughs> Globally, that'll get a lot of headlines. Like Ethereum is now the number one market cap thing. I don't even, I can't game theorize that very well. Um, if it happens, I think it would be good for crypto if it was pretty short lived. If it's long lived, I actually think the chances that it is dangerous to the market are quite high because it threatens the network effects of Bitcoin as a whole. And people, the Lindy effects on Bitcoin are much stronger than the effect Lindy effects on Ethereum. And I think that the fragmentation that could create and kind of the global narrative of crypto could be pretty dangerous to all of crypto. So I think it's actually best for Bitcoin to be king uh, of the market, but it needs to, Bitcoin needs to beat this battle with uh, like ESG stuff, um, like the, the, the global impacts of Bitcoin mining and some of those things. That is that's been a real problem for Bitcoin and I think will continue to be a problem for Bitcoin. And if ETH displaces Bitcoin permanently, I think that's very low on the probability curve, but it is possible because of the ETH 2.0 moving to staking. They have solutions to these ESG problems and Bitcoin doesn't. Uh, Bitcoin's has to be a, a longer term narrative of clean energy is supplying power to Bitcoin security and that kind of stuff. Um, so yeah, that, that's my thoughts overall. I do, I do think if the bull market straight up continues, like we just have strength over the next six to 12 months, I think the, the flipping or at least all time highs in Bitcoin, on ETH BTC above 0.15 are likely, I'd call it likely, not guaranteed, but likely strong words. I mean, I completely agree with you that, um, I mean, the flipping would cause a lot of upset, right? And I think yeah. crypto has to be a little bit more entrenched in everything. And if everyone kind of needs to know about crypto as a whole already for that to like be good for the market, because if it isn't, right? Like, let's say you're not really into crypto, you've only heard about Bitcoin, and then you hear, okay, this thing is not really the thing anymore. It's now ETH. Yeah. You're going to be like put off by that. Definitely. You would instantly think Bitcoin is dead. And it's yeah. not dead. It's probably up a lot. <laughs> yeah, <I laughs> but mean, it's it, been displaced. It would scare pretty much everyone, I think, into like not getting into the space because why would you be buying like at that point? Like, why would you be buying ETH and not something else? Because I mean, if ETH overtook Bitcoin, something else can overtake ETH, right? And yes. then it becomes really, really difficult for an uninformed person to kind of make a judgment on what to buy, right? And I think. Like in general, we've been seeing some of that with the with the old coins where people are like, okay, Dogecoin's gonna become the next thing because they really don't know like anything about the space. They're just like, okay, Elon is talking about it, so it has to be. And then like I think that's been like one of the strongest headwinds for crypto in general, that people just don't know what's good and what's bad. ETH flipping Bitcoin is absolutely the what gives the open lane 
for Doge to be the number one crypto <laughs> asset in the world at some point. And that is the bizarro world where I am out, right? Like th that is that is not good for crypto. I would be in cash big time um, if that if that just continued down, right? Like if something started threatening, like if what if Bitcoin went to number four or something, you know? Like <laughs> so ETH is the Trojan horse by which Dogecoin becomes number one. That's a very compelling thesis. Isn't I it though? I quite like it. I, I like I, I'm, out of, I'm out of crypto in that scenario oh, because no, I agree. It, yeah. it threatens the network effects, which I think are the most important component of crypto. Yeah. And as you said, it also opens this insane Pandora's box where suddenly any altcoin can become the number one crypto killer. And, you know, if nothing is sacred, if we don't have a bedrock on which to build and if network effects and longevity and network security, if all those things are irrelevant, then, yeah, it becomes the upside down. As a podcaster, it would make fantastic content. <laughs> yeah, priorities, right? Um, As an investor, I'd be a dollar-based yield farmer for the next, like, three years. <laughs> I do want to ask, you mentioned that if this is straight up bull market continuation, then some form of flipping is likely, right? Now, mm -hmm. in terms of positioning for that, or interpreting market signals as that thesis being validated, invalidated, whatever, what would that kind of look like chronologically? So for example, Bitcoin goes to the 45 level, which you mentioned has a lot of moving average confluence, uh, technical structure confluence, uh, and a reasonable area to de-risk, right? Let's say the market just blasts through that completely, and, and there's mm -hmm. no resistance to be found, maybe some new narrative, catalyst, whatever causes it to really shift the probabilities in favor of bull market continuation, right? The number one de-risk, risk-off area gets completely smoked and, you know, the bulls are reinvigorated for whatever unforeseeable reason. Presumably, that would act, you know, that would be some evidence that, okay, we're going to have bull market continuation and then maybe we enter or continue the period of ETH outperformance relative to Bitcoin, assuming the higher time frame trend is up. Now then, that would make quite attractive conditions for that flippening thesis to come to fruition. And how mm -hmm. would you bring that to life or position for that? Is it the case that if Bitcoin doesn't de-risk and looks good on a higher time frame, you just start jamming longs into ETH? Or is there more sophistication to bringing that trade idea to life? No, I think that's basically right. Like, <laughs> I'm actually, the other reason I'm not huge on ETH right now is because, you know, I ignored the Bitcoin goes beyond the 20 week thing because ETH was bullish. Right now, ETH has uh, just lost his 20 week moving average this week. Um, and the the most bullish scenario for ETH is a consolidation very, very similar to when ETH went to 400 in May, in, uh, May and June 2017. And then it made this gigantic ascending triangle thing um, until the end of the bear and until the end of the market. And it broke out in like late November or December. Y'all recall that when it went from 400 to 1400. Yeah. I basically think ETH needs to do a repeat of that on a dollar basis. So recover this 20 week and I'm like very bullish ETH itself. Um, uh, but that's about $2,300 that it needs to recover. Um, if ETH can paint like some kind of consolidation pattern from a technical perspective, and by the way, the fundamentals align with this being possible because this EIP 1559 stuff coming into place, ETH layer two stuff, lots of lots of good fundamental narratives that ETH can ETH can say. 
And I basically think its consolidation may end up looking more bullish than Bitcoin's, and that would allow the ETH BTC chart to be constructive along the way. So Bitcoin doesn't die, gives the excuse for Ethereum to recover its trend, basically, and then create some type of consolidation, best case scenario being some giant ascending triangle that lasts until November or something like that. And then you're like sitting here ready for a breakout from like 3,800 to 4K ETH and your breakout takes you to like 10K. Well, that magically, in my mind, gives you the reason to take out the highs of like 0.08, 0.085 on ETH BTC. Mm-hmm. And then over 0.1, I just think it's a runaway roller coaster. And you get this massive move where it takes all the attention and off it goes. Um, and I, I think that's how it could happen. That is the best case scenario. We all get rich. We retire in January <laughs> type of scenario. Um, I hope it happens cause I want to get rich and retire in January. Right. Um, I, I, it's possible looking at the charts, the key level on EPTC in my mind is still that 0.055, which we had talked about before about yes. how we thought it was going to blast through. And my actual target was 0.084. It didn't quite get to 0.084, but it did. It got very close. Um, and now it's like, okay, EPTC consolidates in that range and waits to break up. And then when it breaks up, well, you're breaking above the the macro highs of like, First was January or no, June 2017 when ETH went all the way to 0.15. The the next one was February 2018. It went to 0.1. And then the true complacency bear market thing was May 2018 at 0.084. So if we break above 0.084, you're really getting to these historical ETH BTC levels. At the same time, this fee burn mechanism is existing and the supply of Ethereum could potentially go down or the inflation certainly will go down. Um, the ETH network usage could be really high. The DeFi narrative could really catch on. There could The layer two adoption is going to eclipse Bitcoins. You can hear all of the reasons why that that could play out. I just want to see the strength in Bitcoin first before I'm willing to ape in and assume ETH BTC is, is ready for more action. And uh, 0.06 or so, I think that that's actually uh, on a weekly close is pretty compelling. The problem is the downside is like all the way back to that 200 day or 200 week moving average of like 0.04. Um, I I don't really want to carry an ETH BTC downside of like 30%. You know, that's a pretty big downside. So for the moment, I'm trying to take these faster trades in DeFi with a basis in Bitcoin because I do think um, the way Bitcoin responded to the yearly open, that's what exactly what it bounced off yesterday. Like, almost to the dollar, the yearly open. Um, if Bitcoin remains constructive, I'll take my trades in uh, with a collateral of Bitcoin, spot into DeFi until ETH recovers that point, like maybe 0.06 combined with 2300 or so. And then if it does that, then I might re-collateralize to Ethereum, assuming better upside for Ethereum. Awesome. Yeah, that's a very, very comprehensive breakdown of what that trade would look like. One of the things you mentioned was, you know, ETH basically has a red carpet rolled out in front of it in terms of the roadmap, the fundamentals, yeah. and the narratives that one can construe if the price action is constructive, right? <laughs> yeah. uh, it's like, it's all there. And 
a lot of it was already being advertised or shared on the way up that you know the reason for eth outperformance is these up you know these upcoming catalysts that's why eth is doing so well then obviously the market crashed and then of course you can construe a new narrative that hey it's going to recover better or it's still going to be the better long because the 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 timeline hasn't changed much so my question to you is when it comes to uh, you know, EIP-1559, scaling, proof of stake, which, as you said, has those anti-ESG, you know, defense capabilities, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. Don made a good tweet a couple of weeks ago where he said, a lot of the time when when you start catching on to a narrative, there's a good chance that all the preceding price action was to some effect because of that same narrative. And there's some level of bias that you choose to believe that, okay, the narrative is now active, and you only look at it in terms of where the market's going to go, as opposed to, hey, maybe all this crazy price action we've had over the past year was a product of those same narratives, right? It's kind of a question of when's the on switch uh, for these narratives. So I guess my question is, yes, there's a red carpet with regard to what can be expected sort of this year, next year, etc. And this is without commenting on the uh, tenuous release schedules that ETH upgrades tend to have. But how much of this is priced in? And does it even matter to talk about things being priced in, uh, given, for example, Bitcoin bulls attribute much of the past run or the most recent run to the halving? Like, it doesn't seem there's a much of an expiration date when it comes to these fundamental um, narratives or catalysts. I mean, is it simply the case that if ETH starts to look good, then we'll kind of convince ourselves that there's a bunch of narratives and we'll keep going and then kind of just momentum and reflexivity take over because that's sort of my interpretation i'd love to hear your thoughts though if it if the narratives that have been spun work in real life um <laughs> i wish i could remember which guest we were talking to that was mentioning this but you know bitcoin's bitcoin is uh deterministic in what's going to happen in the future the happening the type the like the supply curve is deterministic. We know today exactly how many Bitcoin will be released six years from now or whatever. We know the impact the happening will have on supply. We don't necessarily know the difficulty, what the price will be, like all that kind of stuff, but we know the supply. With ETH, it's much squirrelier, right? Um, there are models that you can create, but it's more, it's stochastic, deterministic, you know, stochastic, you don't know. Uh, but you can model it. You can model, okay, well, 1559 has the base fee, and then there's the minor tip. And here's how it all works together. Here's what the gas prices will be. Here's how much ETH will be burned based on anticipated network usage. Here's the exponential increase in gas when everything gets crowded. And then here's the that's the incentive for people to stop using the network until gas gets better or it'll whatever, whatever, whatever. At the end of the day, all that matters is that ETH burns and the supply uh, inflation is less than anticipated or less than modeled. Um, the risk is if that does not work. So some people say ETH will actually become deflationary because you're going to burn more ETH than is being supplied to the market with new, new ETH creation. Uh, I think that's not the narrative they want to spend because you want to outperform expectations, right? <laughs> if you underperform expectations, the threat of pricing it in is higher. Um, despite it being stochastic in modeling, at the end of the day, worst case scenario, the inflation curve for Ethereum should be lower, meaning 
less Ethereum is hitting the open market theoretically to be sold than before 1559 went into effect. Now, if it's only like 10 or 20%, perhaps it was priced in too optimistically. And for a while, it becomes actually bearish. Um, in my opinion, if inflation goes down at all relative to what it would be without 1559, over time, that would be constructive and, and bullish from a supply perspective. If it's more than like, if it's a better than like 50% um, improvement on total inflation, new ETH into the market, what happens is I don't think it's, it's not like a, narrative because it's physical ethereum that is now not being given to the market to sell the same as the happening people talk about whether the happening is priced in every time but then you know you you get half the bitcoin going out on the market in every block that's the actual reality and as long as there's any demand well it, it creates this force multiplier on price because that's what people need to like the price needs to go up for miners to be profitable and the difficulty, if it's going up at the same time, the network usage, well, if the same is true in, in ETH, if DeFi is being used at a greater rate, demand on the network is being increased, it should create this force multiplier on ETH as ETH is being burned with the base fee. Um, that should be very bullish, and it should not be priced in because it's a physical effect. It is not just a narrative effect. It is actual Ethereum that burns. The smartest people I've talked to in the ETH landscape believe that layer one will always have an important place. The other component of whether this could be bearish would be so many people move to layer two, be it side chains like Polygon or proper layer twos like Optimistic or ZK rollups. If so much stuff moves to those that actually layer one becomes like this empty highway and is not used very much, then you don't get near the fee burn that you anticipate because everybody's doing everything for like zero fees, right? <laughs> On layer two. Mm -hmm. The best and the smartest people I know in the ecosystem think that essentially, even if some people are like layer two only, right? You onboard directly to layer two and you're never off of layer two because you're just, honestly, you can't afford uh, $50 Ethereum layer one transactions. It's an absurdity to you. You live your entire crypto life on layer two, participating in DeFi on layer two. Some people will still be using layer one and it'll be enough people like the whales of the world that the fee mechanisms, the burning of Ethereum due to 1559 will always exist. If that is not true, that can also be bearish and on the, on the inflation structure. We just don't know because it's stochastic. It is not deterministic. We do not know the exact formula of ETH supply. So it'll be very important to see what is the actual impact on Ethereum's inflation relative to what we anticipated. And I think what we're anticipating is that the inflation will go down significantly, whether that's 10%, 50%, 90%, or extremely become deflationary. I don't know what the answer will be. We'll have to find out. It's a it'll it, We'll see a realization of the models. And if those realizations outperform expectation, I think it'll be extraordinarily bullish. I like that. I mean, I think in general, how this, this kind of stuff works is that whenever you get to the upgrade or to halvening or whatever, um, some of it is priced in. That means like you get sometimes after the fact, you get like negative price action. 
yeah. but in the long term or like in the following weeks to months price usually has an easier time going up because yeah. less people are selling um so i totally agree with you there to sell you, the news people sure maybe they have to be like chewed up and spit out but then they're done they're out they sold the news now you just have people that are buying because the inflation's lower yeah i i like that view a lot and i think like people overcomplicate stuff a lot in general like you see a lot of stuff that is very very obvious for example the sailor kind of buy news right he's saying okay he's buying a bunch and then people are like okay he's trying to buy so he has to push price lower to be able to buy cheaply and it's like no he's just gonna buy a shitload and price until he's bought is probably gonna go up because people are gonna realize if they want to sell they can sell higher right yeah um, and it's gonna be the same kind of um with 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 the halvening and with um eve it's always kind of plays out the same way Do you every happening has been bullish in the <laughs> in the mid to long term and i i think 1559 will probably be bullish as well unless something gets like pretty hilariously broken <laughs> like you know ethereum is much um it's much it's much more loosey-goosey in terms of the the actual live network uh and that's a, a feature in most ways right the experimental nature enables product development um in, in DeFi and elsewhere if it is if the actual result of these tokenomics changes the core platform changes you know eth 2.0 if those blow up, then that's hilariously bearish for Ethereum, obviously, and finally opens a window for all the Ethereum killers. If ETH Layer 2 plays out well and all that, it's been interesting because we had a fantastic test net for what does the market do when fees are cheap on a smart contract platform? We saw it. We saw what happened on BSC. The answer is they go freaking ballistic. What happened on Polygon? They go freaking ballistic. And it's really hard to onboard to those places for some people, like getting coins on those places. And they still went nuts. The, the free market decided to do every possible lunatic thing that you, can pop, that you can do on a blockchain. They used it a lot. So Ethereum already has more transactions happening on it consistently than Bitcoin because you can do a lot more. Uh, BSC rapidly had more transactions and more activity than Ethereum, despite the like product landscape, if you want to call it that, being very weak on BSC. It was mostly scams. But the excitement, the fervor over number go up stuff, <laughs> the safe moons of the world, um, that was enough to draw people in, and they used it. And if ETH Layer 2 is similarly easy to use and then imagine bridging solutions and things like that get some uh get much easier for people to get money to them they're going to use it we just had the test net for it and that could be very bullish as you see increased activity because eth layer one today prices out almost anyone who is not extraordinarily privileged um suzu said on uncommon core some months ago that or maybe he said on up only i don't remember which he basically said, if you have $100,000 and you're transacting only on ETH Layer 1, you're going to be broke in less than a year. And he's absolutely <laughs> right. If you're transacting every day, multiple times a week, something like that, you're going to be broke in a year because you're going to spend that much money transacting on Ethereum. I have spent tens of Ethereum, I'll just leave it there, tens of Ethereum transacting on Layer 1. 
thankfully it has been worth it. But for most people, that is not worth it, right? Yeah, I mean, the, the less ETH you have, right, the, the harsher the punishment gets. It's, it's yeah. kind of like, if you're super rich, you don't really care about like $50, $100 here and there. But yeah. if you have like one grand to kind of trade with, and then you spend like a tenth of that for every transaction, I mean, that's right. I mean, and that's a tough sell, right? And for someone like me, like I am not some giga whale. I have enough money to where that was worth it. But I look at it and I want to freaking puke because I can use that real money in my actual life. It just happened to be that the upside was good enough, especially early on, to do it. And now, of course, when you go to the websites that measure that stuff, they base it on like today's Ethereum price, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it wasn't that good. many dollars when I was doing it. And like the Ethereum that I made making those trades was worth it or participating in yield farms or whatever. But when you look back on it, it's like, oh my God, I spent that much in fees. That's insane. Yeah, it's like a cruel version of Bitcoin pizza to some extent. <laughs> yeah, know, it at is. the beginning, we mentioned how the risk curve operates, kind of go from Bitcoin to Ethereum, then nowadays DeFi, and then you go maybe further out, depending on how crazy you are. We, yeah, we've kind that's of where I stop. <laughs> right, that's where you stop. I, I find myself hitting a wall around there as well. But just like the risk curve operates, we've kind of followed the similar structure for our discussion. So we started off with Bitcoin in the market, then Ethereum, and now we're at DeFi. Uh, I want to ask you about like DeFi market structure. And one of the prevailing narratives, which I don't think is completely dead, but certainly dented by the market recently. And that specific point is about the kind of decoupling slash uncorrelated nature of DeFi, given it is so kind of stable coin dependent and independent as far as generating cash flows, right? So for those unaware of what the kind of base case or argument is like, it's basically that DeFi doesn't fit under regular altcoin criteria. DeFi assets are productive assets, uh, which have their own cash flows and to some extent can even be uh, measured by analogy, uh, like with other real companies in the real world. And accordingly, the argument went that, you know, if crypto starts to correct or if Bitcoin goes up and down, whatever, because these things are to some extent more insulated than we've seen other altcoins in the past, there could be a world where DeFi just stays DeFi and then the crypto market does, you know, whatever the crypto market does. Uh, and obviously that narrative gained steam when there was a lot of evidence for it. You mentioned that earlier on the market was stuck. Um, ETH even wasn't doing much and it was all in DeFi, right? It kind of had its own secular independent cash flows and that created this feedback loop where it was like, hey, this thing is completely detached from the market and it, it's very much real in terms of um, you know, the rights you're afforded by owning these tokens, cash flows, you're actually using these altcoins for a change, right? As opposed to the 2017, 2018 stuff. So, you know, that generated a lot of traction. Of course, when I say the narrative was dented, I'm referring to the, the price action that followed the crypto crash, the first one, um, more broadly. And even more recently, uh, as early as, you know, as recently as three, four days ago, uh, shit perp, the shit index on FTX, was performing better than the DeFi index, right? So I guess this is just a very, just to set, I set the, try, try to set the scene there, but my long wounded um, kind of monologue was to basically ask, do you think the decoupling slash uncorrelated argument uh, for DeFi is dead? Uh, kind of what needs to happen for this sector to become secular or gain some legitimacy beyond 
um, just being a higher risk curve play because if you look at the crash it kind of it, it, we kind of reverted to first principles where hey collateral is collateral right if i need to liquidate stuff to stay above water on bitcoin and eth uh, there are no sacred cows where where do you land on this discussion i think in the long term it'll play out fairly well um during a mania the, it won't because it's overpriced relative to what it does today. Um, so I think that the, for me, the best way to think about it and the value of DeFi is to think once a gold rush type of mania is over, what will, what will make this attractive to real people, not degenerate speculators? So the example that I like to use is what if I move my bank account to my phone? This isn't that hard for someone to imagine in America, in Europe, it's pretty easy to get a bank account, but a lot of people, especially lower income people, I, I know they don't have bank accounts, uh, in, in third world countries, a lot of people don't have bank accounts. The unbanked is, um, a common reality in much of the world. That's for people that don't have access, but then there's the opt out people that could be well to do people like us that we don't need a bank anymore. We can do something different. One of those something difference is uh, I'll use myself as an example again, um, or like a regular, a regular Joe, right? Um, maybe I don't carry enough of a balance in my checking account to get yield on it or even to avoid fees. Let's say that um, on average, I maintain a thousand dollars in my, in my bank account. Okay. Or, Screw it. Ten thousand. Let's say we have ten thousand dollars in my bank account. Uh, I probably don't qualify for getting significant yield in a checking account in the real world. Uh, therefore, if I averaged that ten thousand dollars in uh, ten years, I'm still basically going to have ten thousand dollars, right? Because it's going to be maybe ten thousand one hundred with the zero point zero one percent interest they may offer you plus fee free. Um, what banks actually do, so one of the banks I use charges me $7 a month unless I maintain like $25,000 in the bank account. So this is especially impactful on the person using a bank with or only with a $1,000 balance. If you're paying $7 a month, you're paying a lot, much less not earning yield. Mm -hmm. For me with my, say, $10,000 bank account, if I were earning 7% interest on that, uh, in 10 years, it will have doubled. Or if I was earning 10% interest in seven years, it would have doubled. That's the rough rule of thumb of compound interest. So if you're maintaining that typical balance over time, you should you should double your money maybe over 10 years. 7% interest is not insane for money that's being put to work. Um, that does not happen for any normal people in the real world. It does happen for high net worth individuals where you can get stable earnings with conservative investments in bond markets and other places. Um, there are services that'll provide a variety of returns depending on your prof risk profile, but maybe three, four, five, six, seven percent in stable stuff. Um, in DeFi, a consumer app that is also a DeFi product that acts as someone's bank account where I can have a, a joint mixture of sorts. Now, granted, this may not all be decentralized because of the what's occurring, but where I can pay with something that's a lot like Apple Pay to an individual to buy my coffee, 
And I can also just maintain everything like I would a mobile bank account within an app. But in fact, all that money is on my phone or it's in my own custody and it's operating in the DeFi landscape. But this is not the world where I'm paying $7 a month to have a bank account. It's a world where I'm earning the available yield that exists through strategies and my money's being put to work, but I also have access to liquidity in my savings. Now, no matter who I am, the person with $1,000, $10,000, or $100 million, I can earn this yield. And I think in the long term, similar yield will play out. But for the short term, we have the benefit of also being exposed to smart contract risk. So we earn a couple points for it. If I can be empowered to double my money that's in my bank account over that seven or 10 year period, whereas the competition is these banks that freaking suck and they're charging me to use their service, this is obvious which one wins. And in the long term, I think that's the promise of DeFi and that's the promise of being bankless is that you have access to real world stuff. You have user interfaces that are known to a consumer and that are um, nice to use. And then you also have access to yield in the real world. That is a powerful financial mechanism. Yields come down as adoption increases, but even in the regular world, we see yield, there's still yield. It's just not thousand percent APY on freaking Titan, you know? Yeah. In that case, those protocols that are being used are valuable, just the way Wells Fargo or whatever is valuable in the real world. And they're actually much more valuable because there's going to be a growth curve of decades as people abandon their banks or even abandon traditional fintech. I think there's a reason why Venmo and PayPal, which are the same company, now accept crypto because they see that this can kill them because it's self-custody with all the ease of use and everything else that they offer. And that is the promise of crypto. In that scenario, the fees that turn into protocol revenue, the scrape off of the yield or whatever whatever mechanisms you want to build into it, this is not to teach people about what exists in DeFi. That is how those become extremely productive protocols and extremely profitable over time and extremely valuable to token holders. And looking at it in that lens, it makes me think that, yes, they can decouple. Today, in a gold rush, they're all just extraordinarily reflexive from Ethereum itself or whatever else. So it's harder for them to decouple today. Uh, Very few protocols are priced at an attractive like price to sales ratio or something like that if you want to put some kind of fundamental narrative to it. Um, Some, you can do that because they actually do have token value accrual. Too many of them are tied not to the actual protocol fees, but instead to the value of the governance token or whatever the yield actually is. So if that goes down 90%, the yield goes down 90% too. So it makes it doubly reflexive. Um, So that's that's some of the problems with it today, but that's a mania. That's not the long-term. The long-term is I think these can be quite decoupled and very, very, very attractive to investors. And I think that's where the gigabrains of of DeFi, I think that's where they're looking to. Awesome. Um, I Yeah, I think time horizon is a very important consideration 
as you mentioned. Maybe we're all blinded by recency bias and we think there's no decoupling or even no value because in this specific short-term market cycle, it kind of acted like you'd expect any other altcoin to act. Uh, I do want to ask you a couple of points, you know, almost common criticisms of this um, articulation of the DeFi value proposition. Uh, and to me, it really has uh, two prongs. The first one is that the yield is a product of that same old reflexive speculation. Uh, and that if, you know, it's basically a demand to borrow um, dollars in some cases or even other forms of collateral, but it's all a byproduct of, in many cases, crypto native speculation. And it suffers, you know, it benefits from that re reflexivity to the upside when the greed goes crazy, but also has that same um, downside reflexivity where if all the speculators are dead and risk appetite is low and, you know, smart contract risk is being priced differently um, and, you know, TVLs start going down, ETH price goes down, like it, it's very rough, right? It all kind of piles onto one another uh, and therefore the, the yields aren't maybe on, on a sort of consistent basis aren't as attractive as they may seem. And the second prong is that one of the benefits of uh, the banking system as it's set up is it's very maybe not neatly, but at least it is integrated into our legal system, right? It's kind of, you can make legally recognized claims over assets like houses, cars, <laughs> whatever. Uh, and there's essentially a recourse to real world assets when it comes to banking. Uh, you know, that's one of the reasons, for example, why crypto, this is slightly off topic, but still relevant. One of the reasons yeah. crypto margin is so expensive and inefficient is because you can't go beyond your bankruptcy price. You know, they don't right. know who you are. There's no, they have to just, you just get liquidated to zero and not beyond that. And a lot they of the time- They can't margin call you and like literally show up and up say- you, Yeah, knock money. on the door and, you know, ask you what's up. Whereas of course in legacy markets, you have to provide a bunch of actual documentation, creating that link between you and whatever you're trading. And therefore, you know, that comes with certain privileges as well. Uh, do you find any of those points compelling regard to where, you know, the source of the yield, as well as the absence of a recourse to real world assets? Or do you think as adoption goes, you know, that those things are essentially remedied with time? I find them totally compelling and they should be solved in time with a variety of mechanisms, but it's not a guarantee that they will be and it could all fall on its face and fintech wins and, you know, we're all at the mercy of the the paypals of the world um the stuff there's a lot of stuff that needs to be created basically uh insurance being a big one right so you may um choose to have one or two percent less yield or whatever number in order to have insurance for these disaster scenarios that your bank or your credit card or whoever they kind of protect you from today so some of those experiences that are much more consumer friendly need to exist I, I hesitate to look forward to the crazy world where like we're all custody maximalists. We choose not to have those protections and like we lose our life savings because our phone bricked. <laughs> you know what I mean? uh, that, that's not great. Um, there need to be a lot of hybrid solutions, I think, to kind of fix it. Um, there will probably be new middlemen, new value capture that, doesn't go to the consumer and pulls down these yields and makes it less attractive than I drew out in that scenario earlier, but make it safer for screwing things up, losing everything. What I find interesting is that there's optionality of which road you go down. And right now there's not, it's pretty hard to operate in the world without banks or without credit or whatever. 
in regard to um, who is participating, it's na- it's natural for borrowing and lending to mostly be used for crypto speculation while the product is new. Um, as the products mature, there's lending and borrowing that occurs in the world all the time. Fully collateralized is actually the rare way to do it. The typical way to do it is partially collateralized. And as partial partial collateralization uh, lending, if that starts to occur in crypto, either dynamically through very narrow structures, so like the type of loan is very specific that allows them to have partial collateralization without bankrupting the lenders, that would be very cool. Um, There's people working on that. And then um, more, uh, what do you call that? Like uh, more variable where there's actually maybe a human being deeming you to be credit worthy. Um, But what if they work for a DAO and the funds come from a crypto protocol and not a bank? Like in that case, you can still do some of the same stuff. Um, Some of this infrastructure can still exist, but the, it's just different than it looks like today. Um, maybe I'm I'm talking about a world that is unlikely to exist, but I do think it's possible to exist. And I do think that in the long term, it's more attractive than the current um, banking system, which does quite a poor job of serving tip normal people. Um, my grandfather, this is something my my dad was telling me not too long ago about he spent his career essentially offering credit to people to buy cars who could not get credit themselves this is a day when credit was much harder to get right um and they had to determine he had to determine the credit worthiness of someone who on paper was not credit worthy and i think that was a pretty noble thing and like one of the things he was known for was basically uh, having a very low default rate so that the people that they determined were worthy of credit, that a bank determined they weren't worthy of credit. It turned out they were worthy of credit. The bank, just by the bank system, it didn't deem them so. And without someone like what my grandfather did, that would not have been possible. And I think that these crypto-based solutions have a similar opportunity to provide tooling to people that banks deem not worthy or not worth their time or too much energy and uh, a variety of crypto native tooling and where the lenders, the actual money that's being fronted for these people is chosen by the people that choose to deposit there. It's a much more rewarding and inclusive ecosystem for financial infrastructure that currently is only available to the most privileged of people in the in the banking world. And I think the promise of that is pretty cool. Um, but this is all like my like optimistic worldview, but you can't look at emerging technology and say like, well, here's all the ways it'll go wrong. Um, Agree. Even if you're slightly correct, like the investment thesis is insanely successful. Like the asymmetry yeah. that's baked into that is you don't I, need to I be fully that, correct to, you know, whatever. Right. And I think that's the vision that most of these uh, investors with long-term lenses in DeFi, I think that uh, that's a, a pretty similar vision to what they have. Yeah. I mean, I honestly like, like that a lot because even if it doesn't work, right, even if you're like the pessimist in the room, it at least gets the powers in place right now to kind of look at what they're doing 
because I mean, they don't really have competition right now, right? And competition only furthers everyone's interest. So, I mean, at the worst, it's a good thing. And at the best, it's a really good thing. So I agree with you there. I think that's at a bare minimum. Dude, I went to the bank three times to send a wire transfer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it's I mean, like, what? It feels ancient, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, it, um, and all of those services are so, so ripe for disruption. There's, good, there's so many arguments to make and like things to figure out. And it's not necessarily like one group wins or the other. I, I, I kind of hate the comparisons of the web to crypto or blockchain stuff because it's not ever going to be perfect. But the open web of like anybody can build a website, put it out there and find exposure using open protocols was not a guaranteed winner. You know, like there could have been an internet that was capable for using on Windows and an internet that was capable for using on other platforms uh, or web development that wasn't based on an open standard. And you had to do it completely differently depending on which platform you were presenting it to. The open web won for a long time. There's some threats to it, of course, um, but it won for a long time and it was massively beneficial to the user. And I think that it's possible in this landscape and the battle lines may be between um, banks and crypto. It may be between fintech and crypto. If banks are the guaranteed losers, I don't, <laughs> I don't know. I, I just generally think like banks are the railroads of our century and the new, the new options are so superior that the companies that make the railroads either need to become different companies or they will be displaced um, because nothing about what they're doing makes a lot of sense. I like that. Um, going back to the trading kind of side of things, why would you be trading DeFi if Dogecoin goes up like a billion percent more than it does? Like, where do you think, like, why do you think that is? Do you think that's going to kind of reverse? Um, what's your kind of thesis on all of that? If I felt like that was going to last and it was always going to be easier to trade from a price action point of view or something, then maybe. Um, I have a problem where it's just like I would rather lose money on something where I, I have some capacity to understand why it does what it does. The mimetics of it is the new word, right? Like it's no different for me than saying I'll trade AMC because AMC is going to go up more than, uh, you know, some stock I believe in. I, I can't do that. <laughs> like to me, AMC is a worthless movie company, right? There's no good reason. It's only the dynamics of the market that cause AMC to go up. It's a, a short squeeze combined with aggressive call buyers and the, the dynamics of the market force the price action to go a certain way. And then momentum takes over. Um, I don't under, I don't believe in the fundamental doge narratives, uh, and therefore beyond maybe short term saying, okay, the liquidity is good enough. The price action is good enough. I'll trade it in general. It's not what I want to be watching. It's not what I want to put my pers personal brainwaves in towards, um, participating in. And that's, Strictly because I tend to look at markets as a blend of fundamentals and technicals. And if you do a blend of fundamentals and technicals, it almost always takes Doge out of the picture. But certainly at these levels 
where the price is so high, it takes Doge out of the picture. Um, because I think there will be over a long enough period of time, a massive bleed out of Doge on a relative basis to Bitcoin and Ethereum. The only thing that would change that if it truly would be, if it truly did become Mars money, if it changed its tokenomics, <laughs> if it did create smart contracts, and then Doge is a very different thing than what it is today. That could happen. And then it'd have to become something I'd put in my toolkit of what I'm willing to trade. But Doge at 20 cents is no different than Doge at 60 cents to me, and it's overvalued garbage. Yeah, for the record, I completely agree with you there. I think like these kind of plays, like AMC, GME, Doge, they're all kind of plays against the establishment. It kind of feels like, right? You're just kind of trying to stick it to the man. Um, but in the end, like you're still buying something worthless, right? And most of the people that are buying it are gonna be left holding the back, right? And yeah. the, bad, the bad thing is like that the people that are buying it are the people like at the highs anyway, that the people that those are the people that cannot afford that, right? They cannot afford to lose that money that they're putting in, putting in because like Elon tells them that it's gonna be mass money. And I can almost guarantee you it's not going to be. Um, so yeah, completely agree with you there. Now, if you're like Keyboard Monkey is a good example, trades with size. Uh, I think he's actually a very good trader. Uh, he could care less what the ticker is. If it's got momentum, if he can short it <laughs> or long it, uh, but whichever direction, it's got the price action, it's got the liquidity, he's there, right? And some people, they, they're fantastic at that. Um, maybe I'd be okay at it, but it's not my comfort zone. And yeah i can't i just can't approach it spoken like a man with true conviction yeah just for the (laughs) right like my own personal opinion is that there there are periods in the market where you almost have to trade something if you're purely interested in like short-term trading like when doge is number one for volume and becomes inversely correlated with bitcoin and eth you almost have to trade it because it trades so beautifully um but as you mentioned you're very likely, especially over a larger time frame or time period, you're going to do better if you're trading and investing in things which you care about, understand, etc. That said, I did say a man of conviction, enough conviction to actually build something in the crypto space, uh, specifically related to DeFi as well, uh, which is Flipmetrics. Um, and I'm going to open it up on the stream right now. The website in its current form, we'll have it in the show notes description as well, flipmetrics.com. I know there's some controversy about CMOs in the crypto space, but I think you're by far <laughs> the best looking CMO out of all the uh, crypto companies. So don't let Konomi or any other companies uh, tell you otherwise. But I'm on the website here, actionable intelligence for DeFi markets. I've signed up for your newsletter um, learned stuff about TVL and, you know, Flip FOMO is live. So what have you built? Do you want to tell us about this project? What's your vision? Uh, you know, what what is Flipmetrics? Yeah, what we've built so far is basically we want to show you a, a teaser tool for much more to come. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, first we want to get our, our name out there, our brand out there, start talking about it, get people engaging with us. So that's really what we're doing today. Uh, we do think Flip FOMO is pretty cool. Um, but it's certainly not the end-all be-all of what we're building. Um, Flip metrics is based on the idea of we have all of this information on an open blockchain, but the uh, visualization of all that information leaves a lot to be desired. Um, and we actually think that we can do a good job of helping visualize what's occurring in DeFi markets in particular, 
but everything that's kind of on chain. So what you can see on chain. Um, tokens that trade in DeFi, they're not corporations today, right? So like you don't get a report for, uh, that they filed to the SEC that says top holders sold some and you know things like that. Um, but it is on chain when when coins move around, and you can see did top holders um, are they are they buying are they selling, and then you can go profile that wallet. What else are they buying or what are they selling? Who are these people and what are they doing? Um, can I find evidence of people who have been profitable over a number of years uh, in on chain uh, network participation? Most people today do not trade on chain. Our bet, our big bet, is that on chain trading will be obviously more uh, attractive to a larger percentage of people over time. Now we're already seeing some of this that pure volumes on on chain uh, can compete with the largest centralized exchanges. However, typically from a liquidity perspective and from a trade execution perspective, it's not going to be advantageous to someone versus trading like perpetual swaps on the top exchanges, in futures markets. Um, but I think for most like swing traders, long-term investors, people that want to participate in networks. So like maybe they stake or they yield farm or do other things that more and more of that on-chain activity will still be on-chain and more people will start to adopt it over time uh, as access through layer two networks and cheaper fees on Ethereum and everything increases. Um, and already the liquidity is good enough to where someone like me, I can do half or more of my investing on chain. And there's a lot that we can learn and it's only growing. So our aim is to essentially be people's guide in navigating those markets through profiling wallets, profiling tokens, getting actionable intelligence based off of that information, um, and being able to present that in a way that makes sense and probably provides some education along the way, uh, provides interest. And my goal is that for someone to wake up and the first thing that they look at when they're trying to identify like what is the state or the status, I guess, of their of their crypto investments uh, on chain is to go to flipmetrics.com and that's where they go to do it uh we have a long way to go to build that uh there's no current product that i say i think fits that very well i personally use a lot of different tools to get kind of the the status of my portfolio and my investments and my research and we want to be the, the go-to home base for, for those activities, to be able to monitor yourself, to be able to research who else is out there and what are they doing, uh, to get a feel for what's happening with the tokens that you currently own, what's happening with the tokens that you might want to own, do a spot check on, uh, hey, I like this chart. Now, what do the fun like? What does the on-chain activity tell me? Is there are there red flags here? There is so much that can be done. There's so much data out there. And uh, we are a team of six and hiring. Uh, got somebody on trial right now to be the seventh to build that out. So we're freaking excited, man. Awesome. Yeah, I look forward to the inevitability of opening TradingView and then flip metrics alongside it. <laughs> uh, just to kind of round off the on-chain trading um, 
topic. Let's say someone's just listening to this and they fall into the first category you mentioned. That mm-hmm. they literally go to on the whatever top centralized exchanges, they whatever short-term directionally trade perpetual swaps and so on and so forth. But let's say they were massively compelled by your description there uh, and and the ability to look at these fundamental factors in a, in a very transparent way and where you wouldn't be able to otherwise. How does someone kind of dip their toes into that world when it comes to looking under the hood for a lot of these tokens so you know if someone says yeah i want i want to be able to understand and use flip metrics down the line how do i get started now to get it so to speak yeah (laughs) it's uh well the first thing is to understand that participating in DeFi, whether through trading staking yielding it's all self-custodied where you have coins on a wallet, not on an exchange. And a lot of people have just never done that. Like even people that have been in crypto for a long time. So if you don't have um, Ethereum on an Ethereum address, then you can't do very much because the Ethereum is the gas in an on-chain ecosystem. Um, If people have been in crypto for a long time and they don't know that, then it's worth considering what do you know (laughs) about the stuff that you're trading. that said, you type in one of those addresses. If you go to Etherscan and you put your Ethereum address, you can look at some degree of activity, but that's a very like almost database-driven view of what, what you've been doing uh, with your stuff. And you can kind of see, here's the tokens that exist here. Here's some values. There are tools. Some of them are very good, um, like Zerion or Zapper, where you can type in your address and you can see more specifically, like here's my equity curve over time. Here's my current value. Here's the tokens that exist. Um, and then you can go places to actually visualize and trade. Now, uh, up only is sponsored by uh, Blockfolio, and they're primarily they allow you to track things. But if you wanted to trade on chain, like you can't even do that through like Blockfolio or, or centralized exchanges. Um, Uniswap is the biggest one, but then there's also Sushi Swap and Bancor and all these places that provided uh, that provide liquidity for people that want to trade on chain. I've always said just. I like matcha. They do sponsor another podcast of mine, but whatever. Matcha.xyz, it's not even the ref link, um, is a website where you can type any coin. So if you say like ETH and Ave, and you can then use your ETH and see like how much Ave could I buy for it. And it feels very much like a centralized exchange interface. It's prettier if nothing else. Um, and then it will execute on any of those automated market makers for you. And it'll execute wherever it best can do so. What's fascinating is the liquidity on some of these tokens is better on chain than it is on centralized exchanges. And that is kind of stunning. Um, They even have an OTC feature. So if you were just, say you had ETH and you wanted to go to USDC, you could sell like $10 million worth of ETH through their OTC feature where it's an on-chain OTC mechanism and it's like 1% slippage. So that's pretty insane that you can sell millions of dollars on chain and have like less than 1% slippage and maintain custody the entire time. Um, If you're not exploring what's going on with on-chain trading, I think you're truly missing out. Plus, I think the layer two based on-chain derivatives protocols, access to options trading, access to perpetual swaps, futures, other products, the ones that are building on layer two, there is an absolute, uh, what, do you, what do you call it, like arms race 
for who's going to win that world because the the next on-chain versions of FTX and BitMEX and and those things for people that only want to do it on chain it's becoming possible on layer 2 and there's people that are building it and that's one of the biggest fundraising spaces for hedge funds that are trying to invest in what's next so it's all it's all quite amazing i mean there's billions of dollars on chain and hundreds of millions of dollars per day being transacted on chain that's stunning and anyone in the world can participate you heard the man go lend something stake something trade something swap something get some eth play around with it and then when flip metrics is fully ready become twice as good with all the actionable <laughs> intelligence i'll tell you one thing you can do on flip metrics today and it is it is pretty cool um, if you have a, a token that you particularly like, and I think the best, the most fun place is like maybe in mid caps or something. Um, so I found, I found one recently that was keep. And actually there were hints in flip FOMO that something was happening because there was an on-chain trade for like, uh, 14% slippage <laughs> and you could find it on flip FOMO. And you can sort actually by token and then by the minimum price of the trade and by minimum slippage. So it basically says like, okay, I want to see this token. And then who aped into something recently? That's essentially what Flip FOMO does. It's a list of transactions, a list of trades over time. Uh, and if you don't put any inputs in, it'll just tell you the ones with a minimum of 10K that are coming in over time. It's a stunning amount of junk like scams and dog tokens and crap. But you can go look at your favorite uh, coin and actually see what's happened recently that based on meeting this particular criteria, who's aping this coin on chain and what can I learn from that? Um, it's, it's pretty fun to watch, but that's just kind of the first, it's a teaser tool for what we're, what we'll be building. Awesome. Ledger, we could stay here and talk all day. In fact, we've got a ton more kind of macro points and many other things we'd love to discuss on a second episode, but of course we must cater to people's attention spans and preferred listening periods um so that's that's pretty much all from us do you have any final notes wisdom shout outs things to say to leave our audience with before the inevitable second episode i think that i have to remind myself frequently and i've i've done it a good bit on this interview maybe it's because we just dumped to hell and back we like threatened goblin town recovered we're back a little bit um having a long-term view is very important in crypto uh being being willing to trust your gut that gains are insane and uh taking profit on the way up especially as it's massively up and you realize it's absurd but you don't want to miss more you can't feel bad about that you, you just can't feel bad about it and approaching the next trade from a, a position of power cred you said this recently and it really stuck with me because it was like if you're sitting here and you're stuck and you're like i hope it doesn't go down more because i don't have anything i can do that is not a position of power <laughs> right <laughs> if you have the ability to take action in the case that it goes down that is a much better position of power and having a little bit on the sidelines within your risk tolerances whichever way those go to be able to take action when the market decides to do something outside of the norm, when the market starts hitting standard deviations further out in a price action sense, and you are in power to do something um, to take control of the situation rather than just be victim to it, 
that is a powerful thing that I too often on my crypto journey have forgotten. I've just kind of like been a leaf in the wind uh, rather than like the, the firm, you know, the rock in that environment where, where I can kind of take control. I'm not just subject to wherever the wind blows. Awesome. Don? No, I love that. I love that ending note. Because in the end of the day, right, I mean, crypto just does crazy stuff. And um, you got to be prepared for the crazy, I guess. And if you know, I mean, it's, you can sit out pretty much anything in this space because most of the time it just keeps on going up. But um, it's much more fun if you can actually take advantage of crazy stuff. Totally agree. Gentlemen, uh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you again to Blockfolio for sponsoring Technical Roundup. Get that mobile app and onboard some of your friends and family members before they go on-chain. There's still time. Uh, but that's all from us. Thank you to Ledger for joining us. We'll have all of his Thank links you so much. available in the description below. And yeah, take care until the next episode. Thanks very much. Goodbye.